kids can head on out to uh, Exchange Kids. Out the corridor and turn to your left, that would be great. Just a reminder again about our next uh, sermon series. Um, what does that mean? Is uh, the title of the series. You might think, what does that mean? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? I'm hoping you're all reading your Bibles and uh, you're coming across passages or you're coming across stories or parables or whatever it might be and you think, what does that mean? You know, sometimes you read something, you read a section and you say to yourself, what does that mean? I'm just not sure what's going on there at all. Well, we want you to do that, find that passage and uh, send me an email or see me here on a Sunday and actually say, Todd, here's the passage. Can you tell me what that means? I won't tell you there on the spot, but I'll go away and I'll, we'll put together a uh, series of uh, talks. Um, and what we're looking for is the, either the 10 most popular hard passages or uh, the first 10 that come in, whatever way that might work. But I'll, or you can email it to me at um, info at exchangechurch.org.au. You can email there and I'll um, grab that as well from there. So I've already got about three in so far, so I need a few more. But we've got a, probably another five or six weeks here left in Philippians. And uh, then we're going to move on to what does that mean? So uh, keep that in your minds and um, uh, come back to me with something that you don't understand. Not As I said last week, not saying I'm going to have all the magical answers because not everybody does have a full grip on what's happening in the Bible, but we'll, uh, we'll give it our best shot. But today, yes, back again uh, in Philippians, we're sort of at the halfway point. There's four chapters in Philippians. We've finished two and we're now starting in uh, chapter three. Uh, I was just thinking the other day, there's something in this world that we often value highly, and particularly when it comes to achieving things in life, and it's self-confidence, isn't it? We sort of value this thing called self-confidence. You'll often hear speeches, particularly perhaps after the Commonwealth Games, uh, the other week when people have put in some superhuman efforts, and they just said, yeah, I just had to believe in myself. I just had to believe in myself. Like this self-confidence sort of rises up within them and that brings them an ability they feel to actually carry through and complete the task, whatever it might be. Uh, sometimes I heard one person give a speech after sailing solo around the world. I just had this inner belief that I could do it, this self-confidence. Well, the Apostle Paul wants to pull that apart today. He wants to destroy that self-confidence. Self-confidence may be good in some things, and I think there is some value in self-confidence. But when it comes to the gospel, there is no self-confidence. All our confidence is in Jesus. And that confidence in Christ produces great joy for us. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, let's go to Philippians chapter 3. And we'll just read the first nine verses and then uh, move out from there. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Father, thank you today as we get this uh, opportunity to open up the book of Philippians. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the Philippians 2,000 years ago, and we get this enormous privilege to read it today in complete freedom. We can gather here in this building and we can hear your word and we can begin to think and meditate and reflect about our lives. Uh, Give us a real soft heart to receive this word, to grasp and understand this word and then apply it to our lives. That our confidence would be in Christ and Lord that would produce amazingly great joy in that. Uh, Lord we ask and pray that now in Jesus name. Amen. And I prayed so long the iPad went to sleep. That's no good, is it? And my kids say, you're the dad. That happens all the time. Paul's a passionate man, very passionate man. Uh, And this passage is actually soaked with passion. Uh, There's an authentic intensity here about Paul that nearly jumps off the page as you read it. About nine times in this short passage, uh, Jesus is mentioned, which gives us a very strong hint for what Paul is passionate about. Paul's obsessed with Jesus Christ, and it's a good obsession. For Paul, it really is all about Jesus Christ. Paul can very gladly and heartily sing that last last song. It's all about Jesus. For Paul, life is about Christ. He's the beginning, he's the end, and he's everything in between for the Apostle Paul as he considers who Jesus Christ is. And for Paul, this passion of Jesus Christ isn't some sort of distant impersonal relationship that has no feeling or closeness about it with Paul. This passion of Paul for Jesus was real, it was up close and personal, and it was a pure relationship of joy. Certainly, though, this relationship isn't the same that you and I may have, and I can see all of you and you can all see me, and we can hear each other, you can hear my voice. It wasn't the same relationship that Paul had with Jesus in that sense, but... Through the Holy Spirit and through faith, Paul did have this vital, personal, passionate relationship with Jesus. And it was personal and it was passionate. Let's set the background here for this passage as Paul begins to open up his heart here for Jesus and pours out, I guess, some of that passion there uh, with him in the sense of this confidence that he's talking about. In Paul's day, uh, Judaism was firmly entrenched in everyday society. That was the sort of uh, the religion of the Jews. And uh, they were absolutely living and breathing um, the law of Moses, temple worship, and also the local synagogue with ceremonies and sacrifices. The whole community revolved around this system of Judaism. Uh, It was absolutely every part of their lives with uh, worship, feast days, fasting days, uh, sacrifice days. There's a whole uh, realm of these celebrations and a whole bunch of these laws they would follow. Then what happened was Jesus Christ came along as the fulfilment of the Old Testament, fulfilling all of those sacrifices, fulfilling all of those laws perfectly. He was the fulfilment of the Old Testament. So Paul and the apostles began to preach Jesus and uh, the gospel of God 
from the Old Testament and this began to clash with the Jews who didn't accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah and didn't accept him as the fulfilment of all the prophecies. In fact, probably this was the major opposition that the apostles faced at that particular time travelling around that known Roman world then. These were Jews who were holding on to the law of Moses and circumcision. And these Jews who, who uh, very vehemently held on to that violently opposed Paul and the apostles and Christians wherever the gospel was shared. Uh, there was pretty serious clashes between them. That was sort of the, the scene where Paul was uh, in his particular time and culture. So for Paul then, as he writes this, um, there's like a sense of the danger of this gospel opposition perhaps coming to Philippi. We don't know if they're already in the church here uh, in Philippians, or maybe there's a group perhaps on the warpath or trailing around. They've all sort of heard where Paul's been and they're trying to go there and undo all of Paul's work and undo what these Christians are supposedly doing by saying the Old Testament's fulfilled. Or sometimes there was even so-called believers who were in church who are still trying to cling hold to this cultural um, community thing of really trying to say, no, we've got to stick to the law of Moses and we've got to be circumcised and all these sort of things. They maybe try and add that with the gospel. Sometimes they'd even infiltrate these churches under the false guise of being a Christian and then spread their false teaching and say, no, 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 the, uh, the Old Testament's got to be adhered to vigorously. So Paul defends the gospel here both passionately and vigorously by solely looking to Jesus alone here as we see this passage. And in this defence, he shows the worth and treasure that Christ is. And he begins to defend here this pure gospel. And as is the tone of this book, Paul does it with joy. He starts off there saying, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He does this with a great tone of rejoice. And we'll see this this reason here why Paul has this joy as he begins to open this up here in Philippians. First of all, Paul starts off this passage with a strong warning with a strong warning. And this warning is about what you and I are basing our salvation on. And it's like a flesh-based salvation. It's based on us. It's based on our supposed confidence. Look at this warning here in verse 2. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Pretty strong words of warning there from Paul when he says that. Keep your eyes open and be wary of the dogs. I don't think he means Rottweilers or Alsatians or Pitbull Terriers or whatever else is out there, which is pretty mean and nasty sometimes. He says, keep your eyes open for the evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. Paul's talking about people here. It's probably not in a very nice way to call somebody a dog. It's not going to win you too many friends if you do that. But that's what he's actually doing. He's using some very strong language. These are the people that we sort of spoke about before. They're the Jews who maybe are believers, but they're staunchly holding on to this Old Testament law and circumcision. They're really clinging tightly to it. And for them, it's absolutely necessary that you must be circumcised and you must strictly adhere to the law of Moses to receive salvation from God. For them, there's no other way you can do that. The centre of life has become following all these daily rituals and regulations and laws and hand washing and everything that comes with that. And if you do all that, then God will accept you if you follow all this law really, really strictly. This is the thing that Jesus ultimately came and fulfilled for us at the cross so that we now find our acceptance to God in Christ alone. See, these people here, as they begin to promote this type of teaching, are building their confidence 
in themselves, in what they can do, in their performance, and not what Jesus has done for them. It's about their adherence to the law. How well they can do that then becomes this confidence that they may have to say, God, look at what I've done. Here's why you should take me in. This is where Paul kicks in, though, and says this. Hey, if anybody has got some confidence in who they are and what they've achieved, it's actually me, says Paul. It's me. Look at what he says there in verses 4 and 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence. If there's any confidence, yep, it's got to be me in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What's Paul talking about there? He's giving us like his Jewish pedigree. This is who I am. In strict compliance with Abraham's covenant, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a red-hot Jew. On the eighth day, his parents made sure he was circumcised. I'm a real person of Israel. I'm racially pure. A real blue-blood Jew, Paul would say. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. This is the only tribe that stayed true and faithful to the tribe of Judah after after Solomon had died. We were the really sincere Jews who followed um, the Old Testament. He says, I'm the real Hebrew of Hebrews. All of my family history are Hebrews, says Paul. I can speak both Aramaic and I can speak Hebrew. And I was taught by the highly respectable rabbi from Jerusalem called Gamaliel. He said, it doesn't get better than that. But for Paul, it does. I'm a Pharisee as well, he says. I'm a separated one of this strict elite group of the Hebrew nation. I eat only with true Jews, says Paul. And in this case, as a Pharisee, Paul was a champion. He could argue the law and debate the law with anybody because he knew the law inside out, upside down, front ways, back ways, any way possible. Paul knew this law every way. Paul says, as for zeal and for passion, I was tenacious. I even killed Christians. That's how zealous I was for the law. For righteousness, Paul says, as part of his Jewish pedigree, all 613 laws that the Pharisees had devised from the Torah, he said, I'm blameless. I'm blameless. I've followed all the rituals. I've followed all the ways. I've observed all the ceremonies perfectly to to, uh, claim complete forgiveness from every law. I'm blameless when it comes to that. Paul's saying this is the CV that you need to have if you are a Jew trying to impress God. If there was a Commonwealth Games activity of being the best Jew and they were handing out gold medals for it, I would be the athlete of the Games when it comes to strictly following the Old Testament and uh, that law. Paul is saying if there's any confidence in our own effort to impress God with how good a person you can be, well then it's me. I am the pick of the crop. I am the ultimate. You cannot top what I have done as a Jew. You see, Paul's building a case here, and he's building a case to blow apart any thought of building confidence or security in who we are or what we've done, that somehow this may impress God and he will now accept me because of uh, my performance. See, this trying to earn God's approval affects us all. It really, really does. It affects us all. On one hand... We don't think we are good enough for God. 
we try to, but we just actually realise I'm not good enough. I could never be as good as God wants me to be so that he would love me. I'm nowhere near as good as that person over there. It's hopeless. I'm just not good enough. Poor me. It's useless. I'll never make it. I might as well give up now because I just can't do enough to earn God's favour. That's one hand. I'm not good enough. On the other hand, we can think we are, we are good enough for God. What these, uh, these Jews are thinking. We can start to believe that I'm exactly the sort of person that God is looking for. I go to church every Sunday. I get to midweek CG groups. I even get to hand a few tracts out at the East Outreach down here in the mall and Shep. I give more than 10% of my money to the church. Sometimes in our mind we begin to build our confidence that God will give me things because of where, how well I serve him. We sort of begin to look at ourselves and think, oh, I reckon I'm a pretty good person. I reckon God will have me. Like actually, I deserve this now, God, the way I've been performing lately. Both of those ways are faulty thinking. Both of those ways are neither the gospel. There's no gospel, there's no good news in either of those ways. And the reason that Paul is so strong here in calling them dogs in this passage is because these false teachers are taking glory away from God by telling people you need to save yourself by your own efforts. You need to save yourself by your own efforts. Paul has already said elsewhere in his other writings of the New Testament, said, by the works of the law, no person will be right before God. In Galatians 2.16, he says that. He says this, yet we know that a person is not justified, that is declared right before God, by works of the law, but it's through faith in Jesus Christ. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, Paul said it sort of three times there in Galatians. He's pretty clear there. You can't impress God with good deeds or good works to be justified or declared right before God. It's just not going to happen. Paul's saying, guys, just forget it. Just forget it. Put no confidence in the flesh that somehow you can earn God's favour. If somebody's talking like that, if somebody's coming to you, particularly for the Philippians back then, tell them that's not the gospel. That is not the good news of Jesus Christ. And you need to speak that to yourself if you're thinking today, somehow I've got to do more stuff to earn God's approval. You've got to speak the gospel in your life and say that is not the gospel by trying to do more good things. You see, the world does put a lot of emphasis here on self-confidence or self-help programs. And I get that. And there is some value in that in some events or some activities you might go into. You do need some sort of confidence in the abilities that you have. But when it comes to God, there is no self-confident thinking at all. It will lead you down a path of despair and hopelessness. We cannot approach God as supreme with a self-confidence in our own abilities that somehow we can win God over. That won't happen. So how does Paul respond then? If that was flesh-based, trying to build this confidence on my own abilities, my own work and my own achievements, how's Paul going to respond to help them? If it's not confidence in the flesh, what is it? Where is this confidence? This confidence comes from a faith-based reaction to who Christ is and what he's done. It's a faith in Christ that worships him. Verse 3 of Philippians, chapter 3 says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, Paul says. He says, we are the spiritual circumcision. For we are the spiritual... You might say, what does that mean? 
in the sense of the circumcision marked off the, Israel, uh, the people of Israel as, the, as God's people. Now back then they used the physical sign of circumcision. So today it's the sign of the Holy Spirit indwelling us as believers. So we are the spiritual circumcision. The Holy Spirit enables us to glory in Christ Jesus, it says there. What does that mean? To glory in Christ Jesus. We rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ with the cross. We glory in what he has done. Jesus has fully satisfied God's requirement of perfect obedience to him. We could never do it. We could try all those 613 laws and it just won't happen. Jesus has fully satisfied God's holy wrath or anger towards our sin by dying in our place and bearing our punishment. And Jesus has guaranteed our resurrection from the grave by his resurrection from the grave. We rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is where we glory, says Paul. We glory in this. We don't glory in what we may have done or thought we could have done. We boast and celebrate in what Jesus has done for us. And then we enter into that salvation. We enter into that by faith and repentance, by trusting what Christ has done and turning away from sin and uh, living for him. We believe that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins and he was raised for our justification or right standing before God. We turn from this sin and we put our trust in him and we glory in Christ Jesus and his finished work at the cross. So for Paul, it has nothing to do with what we've done to try and gain salvation for ourselves. Therefore, it has nothing to do with any confidence that we may have in our own flesh or our own efforts. It's nothing to do with that at all. And in fact, Paul sees it as the complete opposite. He sees that our own humanly attempts to somehow win God over actually is an insult to God. It's an insult. Look at what he says here in verses 7 and 8. He says this, But whatever gain I had, that confidence before, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Again, this little section here is brimming with the passion of Paul. You can, I can nearly see his veins popping out a little bit as he's saying this. It just... The, the vehemence or, or just the love he has for Christ as he says this. Paul is saying, think about my Jewish pedigree that I just spoke to you about before. If there's anyone who's ever got all the ducks lined up in a row, it's me. If there's someone who's got their name up in lights before God, it must be me with all that. But he says, all of that stuff, all of that pedigree, all of my Jewish history, all of my... Uh, Pharisee keeping laws, all of that stuff means nothing. It means nothing in comparison to who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for me. It is zip. All of that self-confidence is zip. It's nothing, says Paul. It's like Paul has this sort of financial ledger here. He talks about loss. He's got this financial ledger. He's got this sort of left-hand column. No, Doug's not here today. Do accountants work on the left-hand side? Was the right-hand side? Both. Well, let's go to the left-hand side, right? It's, it's like Paul's got this left-hand column here and he's adding up all these things, you know, Pharisee, Hebrew, tribe of Benjamin. He's put on, this is all like in the debit. This is all good stuff. Debit or credit? Credit. credit. I failed accounting, glad 
debit. He's putting all this stuff on the column, adding up to say, hey, this is what I am. This is what I am. Then he meets Jesus Christ and he discovers the most glorious person in the world and what he's done for Paul. And it's like he gets this big black text there and he just goes through the whole lot of it, crosses it all out and says it's nothing. It's actually all loss. And he gets that texture again. He writes Jesus Christ on that side of the ledger. He said, that's my righteousness. That's my confidence in what he has done for me. In one big action, Paul sees everything he thought he ever achieved in this world as far as trying to please God means nothing. It's nothing. He actually goes on further to say what these so-called achievements are. He calls them a word there, rubbish, you might see in that last verse. Any of you who have got the King James Bible, you won't have the word rubbish there. You'll have the word dung, D-U-N-G. The word Paul uses here is a really, really strong word to describe our self-confidence of what we think we can impress God with. It's like this for Paul when he uses this strong word. He says this, God, here I am. Here's my self-confidence in all the good works that I've done and for you that would recommend me to you. God, I've brought you a pile of poo. What do you think, God? It's pretty good poo, isn't it? That's the word that Paul's using there. Rubbish in the ESV. But if you go back and sort of search what's behind that word, it, it means dung. He says, God, here, I'm bringing you a pile of my poo. Here's my self-confidence. Paul's saying it's offensive before God. It's offensive when we do that. Because see, when we say that we're offering our own good works as payment for our sin... Actually, what we're saying is we don't value Jesus that highly. We think that our good works are just as valuable as him or Jesus needs a bit of help. It's not only what he's done, but we need to add our good works to it to somehow then we can impress God and then he'll accept us for who we are and what we've done. And I read in the commentaries earlier this week, when, when it's like that, it's like trying to strike a match on the middle of a summer's day to help the sun shine around you. It's ridiculous, isn't it? To think we can add something to what Jesus has done and this will now make us acceptable to God. Paul says this is rubbish. This is rubbish. You see, Paul gets it. He actually gets the value of Jesus Christ. Paul has discovered this treasure in who Christ is and what he's done. And he understands that everything in this, else in this world that I may have achieved or may have accumulated, not necessarily wrong at all, but it's actually just rubbish or it's dung in comparison to who Jesus Christ is, what he's done. Paul says there, in order that I may gain Christ, in verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul captures it here. It's not what I've done, it's what Jesus has done for me, and we acquire it through faith by trusting in what Jesus has done. Now this brings joy for Paul. It brings pure joy in knowing this gospel and knowing this liberating truth. And the gospel is liberating. The gospel releases me from the chains of hopelessness and the addictions of sin. It's a liberating gospel. And as I said earlier on, we either fall into this category of no confidence before God or this, you know, 
overconfidence or foundationless confidence before God. When we have no confidence, we, are, we feel utterly hopeless. We just think we've got to try more. I'll just try harder. I'll read the Bible more. I'll pray more. I'll go to church more. I'll serve more. I'll give even more money. We sort of think we've got to do more things somehow to win God over. Now, none of those things are bad things, and we would encourage all those things here at Exchange because they are good things for believers to do, but they're not in any way, shape or form meant to actually attract God to me to make me acceptable to God. Because if I do those things from that wrong motivation of trying to earn God's acceptance, it will just end up being hopeless and despair for me. It'll be failure and it'll just feel fruitless. Because every time I fail to read the Bible or get to church or do any of those other things, I'll begin to think like this. Actually, well, God doesn't love me now. I didn't read the Bible for the last four days. I'm sure he's ripped me off this time. I have failed again. And when that happens, we lose all hope. We lose all hope. Because we are trusting in our own efforts. And one of the most binding things about this, of trying to be on the treadmill of doing good works to, to appease God, is we never feel like we've done enough. Because I can always look across at somebody else over there and they're a far better Christian than me. God will never receive me because I just feel like I can't match up to that person over there. It leads to hopelessness and it leads to despair. We aren't receiving what God has already done for us and given to us in Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, we have this ridiculous, unfounded confidence. We are so cocksure about who we are and our achievements before God that we believe that we are in the elite squad of the Jesus Christ superstars. Some of us suffer with this. We just think God will, God will take me, no problems. He needs me, actually, in, in his theme. I, I don't have to earn my land. He, he needs me. God wants me because he knows uh, the abilities that I have and what I've done. We begin to measure and compare ourselves against others. We start to say, I'm doing way more than that person's doing over there. I'm far more committed than what they are. I don't drink. I don't swear. I don't smoke. I don't look at porn on the computer anymore. I get to church way more than everybody else does. I'm involved in far more activities in serving God than anybody else over here. We compare ourselves with ourselves. And then very deceivingly, a self-confidence begins to grow within us. And very quickly what comes with that self-confidence is pride. Pride begins to rise. God will surely want me. He needs me in his team. This is how Jesus saw it in Luke when somebody like that came to the temple one day. It says in Luke chapter 18. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. They were self-confident that they were righteous. God would have them. And then treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what happens when we actually get filled with our own self-confidence. 
we look down on everybody else and say, they're not as good as me. I deserve to get in because of who I am. And Jesus makes it really, really plain there who's going to go home justified that day. Not the Pharisee. You see, here's Paul's thing. He's blowing up any foundation of confidence that we have in ourselves. He's using strong words like dynamite to blow apart any confidence we have in ourselves. Your self-confidence, he says, is nothing short of filthy, rotting garbage that has an offensive smell driving everybody out of the neighbourhood. When you bring it before God and say, God, look at me, look at what I've done. It's an insult to God. And if you've got no confidence that you're good enough, if that's who you are today, if you think, oh, I'm just not good enough, have a guess what? You're absolutely right. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. And you'll never be good enough. No one is good enough and no one will ever be good enough. That's not where you build your confidence. Paul points us back here to Jesus. Jesus has done what we could never do. Jesus made a way when there was no way. Jesus did what no human being could ever do. You're not good enough and you never will be good enough because that's not where your confidence lies. Here's the confidence. It's in Christ alone that Paul has just so vehemently put out for us. And when self-confidence rises on the opposite direction, Jesus humbles us because he went to the cross and not us. He walked the road to Calvary and not me or you. And when hopelessness or despair closes in, I look to Jesus. He is my confidence. He is my hope. Because it's not about me, it's all about Jesus. And you see, this is why Paul writes here, right at the start of verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble and is safe for me. It's safe and it's no trouble, says Paul, because it's the sure and pure gospel that I'm giving to you. It's safe. I can trust it. It's the gospel that you build your confidence on. It's the same truth today. And I can say to you today, guys, this is safe and this is no trouble for me to speak this out today because this gospel has been setting people free for thousands of years. It's been breaking the chains of hopelessness and despair and it's been breaking here hard hearts of pride because the confidence is in Christ alone and not in anything we can do. And this absolutely liberates It sets us free. It's any wonder Paul can say, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. This Because it's not on us. It's all on him who's done it for us. It speaks rejoicing into our hearts and into our souls. To know Christ and to know the gospel is to know joy. And this joy is a liberating joy. And ultimately begins to serve to glorify Jesus and not me. This is the confidence that Paul wants us to build upon today in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise today as we come around uh, this word here in Philippians. Uh, Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired him 2,000 years ago to write this letter of joy to the people in Philippi. 
Father, today, thank you for the passion in the life of Paul that he really gets who Jesus is. He really gets what the gospel is all about. He really understands, Lord, this gospel is a liberating gospel. It liberates us from hopelessness and despair that I'm never going to be good enough. He breaks those chains by telling us about Jesus, who has done all that we could ever do, could never do, sorry. And Lord, thank you also that this gospel comes and it shatters our pride as well. When we feel like we've achieved things, we begin to see that, no, I never actually went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross for me. I didn't do the hard yards that Jesus did because I could never do the hard yards that Jesus did. He's the only perfect one who could do that. He's the only sinless one who could be that perfect sacrifice uh, before the Father. He rose from the grave. I didn't. That frees me, Lord, from building any confidence in myself. Lord, today I pray that you'd help us to really grasp and get the gospel here as we think about this. Lord, help those today who may be struggling with that, struggling with, oh, I'm not good enough. Help them just fix their eyes upon Jesus in this, I pray, Holy Spirit, and bring that gospel to to bear fruit of joy in their lives. Now, Lord, we ask that, we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go to a song, is there any questions? These last two verses are just absolutely packed full of stuff. And I couldn't have done it justice today, otherwise you'd still be here tonight as we went through that. And I know you would not go that distance. So next week we're going to look at verses 10 11 here to, to really cap this off. And you will see this passion of Paul's go to another level again as he just begins to expose himself to us in these last two verses. Neville. Just on that uh, last uh, no, the last two verses. Yeah. He's... Um, because circumcision is cutting off from the flesh, and yep. we have to be cut from the flesh as well. Yep. So we're the truth. Circumcision, you put no confidence in the flesh. Yep. It's being cut off from the flesh. Yeah, yeah. That's that symbolism Anita we're talking about there. Is we're dying to the sinful deeds of the flesh. I mean, we still have a sinful nature residing within us. I'm a Christian and I still sin. Now, I don't do it willingly and I'm not looking out to sin. I just have this broken nature within me that still trips up and tempts and falls. And all of us, any believer is doing that. But we, we're trying to put that, those deeds to death. And that's that whole idea of putting the flesh to death there. That's symbolic again in that baptism as well. Um, the dung bit. Um, it, 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 it's a big question. That, that's that's the that's the major 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 point of difference between Protestant theology and um, Roman Catholic theology. Uh, justification is the main point of difference. Justification in Roman Catholic theology is a process. You sort of be. You're becoming justified bit by bit. The more you do good things, the more you become perhaps accepted by God. Where Protestant theology says, no, justification is an instantaneous action. That you are justified by what Christ has done. It's a position, not a process. So Roman Catholics may look at that and say, no, you've got to keep doing these good works and they're not done because they're actually contributing to your justification. It's the process of becoming justified. Where the Protestant theology, which is what we believe here at Exchange, is no, no, Christ said it is finished. 
we are justified totally in what Jesus Christ has done for us at the cross and mm-hmm. that uh, has been um, ratified by him rising from the grave as his acceptance uh, fully acceptable, his sacrifice fully acceptable by God. Happy to take more questions after the service and anybody who wants some prayer, uh, we'd love to do that as well. We're just going to finish with one song to, uh, to wrap up and 